speaking of that, we're going to talk about diligent pursuit. So if you're a title person, that's what we'll go with, okay? We'll call it the diligent pursuit. For the last however many weeks, can't remember, we've been talking about this idea of of mission, of Christ-centered mission, of laying our lives down, of living for eternal purpose, of breaking out of what we've always known and going for something more. The American Christian lifestyle, the Western Christian lifestyle, synonymous with the ignorant Christian lifestyle, the compromised Christian lifestyle, the lukewarm, the watered down, whatever adjectives, descriptors you want to put there, it is far from the biblical Christian life. And we're so easily ensnared by it because our humanity, our flesh, our desires lean that way inherently. It is our war. This is why the flesh needs to die, why we need to take up our cross daily and follow Christ. It's a daily thing. We die so that he can live through us. Which means when we wake up, and the first impulse for a lot of us is eat. Right? Because we've gone a solid, depending on who you are, 6 to 12 hours of time without eating. If you're a 12-hour person, you need help. Unless you're really old or really young. Those are the disclaimers. If you're under a year, you need to sleep that long, that's fine. I understand as a parent that sometimes you want your kids to sleep unhealthy amounts of time. But the point is you wake up and your first physical impulse is usually that. It's either to eat and as you get older, it's to pee. So one of the two. There's an impulse that drives you and you respond to that impulse immediately. <clears throat> and our impulses are no different than that. It's why Paul literally rebukes those who are living a non-spirit-led life as those whose gods are their belly. He's saying they're led by their human physical, natural impulses. It's instinctive in our humanity. We were de- our physical body was designed this way. And yet, the Holy Spirit is saying, be led by something different than that. Be willing to deny yourself. Like, say no to those impulses. But say no to it by what? What is... What is the greater thing? What is the higher thing? What is the reason we're saying no? Why would we say no to eating? But there's a reason. I mean, Jesus would literally say no to sleep during his lifetime. There's a reason, though. God is, Jesus in that example is not saying sleep is not good. Paul in his example is not saying eating is not good higher directive that we live and move and breathe according to. And it is not these desires and impulses. We are to say no to them. We're to to deny them, to die to them. When we realize that there's a Lord who has a greater purpose and that there is a greater reality that we are living according to. 
This spiritual realm that we're so disconnected from, especially, especially here, especially in a, a post, post-modern world. And it takes diligence to pursue these greater things. Because they are not the natural impulses. When you wake up and your first impulse is to eat, but the Lord has asked you to fast, your impulse is still going to be to eat, and it's going to be an increasing impulse to eat. It's going to be an increasing demand on you to want to eat until that impulse has learned its place in your life. And for that to happen, it takes a diligent pursuit of the higher thing. A real training of yourself to pursue these greater things. And on top of that, these greater things are often things that don't have an immediate fulfilling. It requires a real trust and a real faith in something that you can't see or taste or touch. And this is where the diligent part comes in. We talked last week about how in order to come to God, we must first believe that He is. Step one, you have to actually believe He exists, and you have to believe He is who He says He is. All of mankind throughout all of history has always believed in God in various forms. Most most often, pagan cultures growing up believed in many gods. In the early Roman times of Christianity, Christians were considered pagans, atheists. A lot of Roman historians would refer to Christians as atheists. Why? Because they didn't believe in the pantheon of gods that the Romans had and the Greeks had and that most other cultures had. So to believe in God is nothing new and it's not special. The Bible says even the demons believe and they tremble. So you get no special prize for just believing that there is a God. But those who come to Yahweh, those who come to this specific Christian God must believe that He is. Not just a God, Yahweh, this God. You must believe in this God And then, the other thing you have to do, in order to be considered a God follower, is to believe that He is the rewarder of those who will diligently seek Him. And this reward, this diligently seeking, this pursuit is unto what we talked about last week, this highest goal of knowing Him. Right? To know Him and to make Him known. Last week we talked about To know him is to want to make him known. And that is the heart of the scripture. Jesus says that thing, that statement, sums up all of the law and the prophets. So for you redemptive history students right now, those of you who have been through it and those of you going through it right now, this is like a snapshot into what you're going to realize when you get to the New Testament part. Is that everything you just spent nine weeks studying, all the law and all the prophets is literally, according to Jesus himself, summed up in this one statement. To know him and to make him known. And to truly know him is to want to make him known. There's this real spring of life and desire. If that's not there, there's work to do in your relationship with Jesus. You're missing something. You haven't come into 
full appreciation of how much you've been forgiven, of how great a salvation it is that you've been given. Because that, by, by its nature, will release a joy and a desire to make him known. I talked about this first step of this diligent pursuit. Pouring over the scriptures until you see his face. And we talked about you know, God coming to Moses and referring to how he engages with Moses as a friend speaks to a friend. And what did he say that looked like? It looked like face to face. But we know from the scriptures that God did not allow Moses to see his actual face. So God uses this expression and says, I don't speak to Moses through dreams and visions. I speak to him like friends do, face to face. And that was, that was something significant. He was differentiating this man that he would speak to as a friend from the prophets and those who didn't know him the way Moses did. And that's an important, important step. And I really drilled down on the word and pouring over the word until that happens, right? Because the, the Pharisees, they poured over the scriptures because they thought in them they would find eternal life. And then Jesus says, but that's not so. But what you will find is that these scriptures, they testify of me. And then later on in John, said, Jesus says this, that eternal life is to know me. And so they missed that connection. They poured over the scriptures, but they never saw his face. Instead, they saw a God of their own making that looked like rules and regulations and, and selfishness and advantageousness. And Jesus comes and he fiercely rebukes them because the ones who are most supposed to represent him well were literally misrepresenting him. And so this diligent pursuit, to me, is what I feel is at the heart of what we miss. This diligent pursuit of Christ. In all the means and ways he's provided for us to do this, instead, we're stuck in what I would call a casual pursuit. We're stuck in a casual pursuit where we have so many things ahead of our pursuit of him. And we've deceived ourselves into thinking we're in this pursuit. We settle into this place of real comfort in routine, in doing things. And I'm telling you, it's, we're, we're, we're still missing it. And God shows up and he encounters some of us and he encounters some of us and he realigns things and we have a chance and then we miss it. And it's, it reminds me of um, resuscitation. Like when a person is out and someone is coming and reviving somebody who's dead and they have to come and they keep compressing the heart, keep compressing the heart, keep compressing the heart, blowing into the mouth, compressing the heart, blowing into the mouth. And you're keeping the vitals alive by doing that. You're keeping all the important things being given what they need, but they're not alive until that final whatever it is causes it to function on their own. And their body then begins to pursue staying alive on its own. And it's, this is, is what it feels like God is doing across the place in, in our land. That he keeps 
doing this. He's coming and he's resuscitating and he's doing these things until the church, one of these times, will finally wake up and grab a hold and literally decide to rearrange their life. And we had, we had a taste of that for a short season, right? Where everyone rearranged their lives for like two straight weeks at least. Whatever was happening didn't matter anymore. Everyone was here at the church pursuing God. It was exciting. It was thrilling. But it wasn't enough to cause, cause our bodies to pursue life on its own. And so we're in this casual pursuit. It's not a diligent pursuit. It's not. We know because the Scriptures tell us that, it, that, that when the body comes together, we see examples. You can go read Acts 2 and Acts 4 and just see. It doesn't matter how they expressed it, but they expressed it by selling what they had and brought it because the only thing that mattered to them was the church and its mission. They sold what they had. They sold their possessions, their homes, their lands, and they came and they, in, in just faith because God was present, that they could just trust giving it to these men called apostles. There was no accountability board set up to make sure the apostles handled the finances correctly. There was no accountability team put in place to make sure that, you know, the funds went to the needy and the poor as, as they intended it to be. There was no, no strings attached to the giving. It was just, God, you are awesome. You are real. You're the only thing that matters. Everything I've been living for up until this point is garbage in comparison to this great salvation and revelation we've just received. So me, myself, my family, my possessions, everything is yours. Do with it as you will. And in that context, the Holy Spirit was the accountability board. The Holy Spirit was the one that was making sure that the, the, those whose hearts were given to the Lord and were sincerely given, that that was honored. Right? We see Ananias and Sapphira, they come, they try to take advantage of the system, and the Holy Spirit holds them accountable. And because of it, great fear spread throughout the church, knowing that God was truly present, and the church exploded in its numbers, in its mission, in its ministry, in its salvation. Even Pharisees were coming to the Lord. Priests were coming to the Lord. Sadducees, rabbis, the whole spectrum. None of them were immune to this great thing God was doing. And what you see consistent there is that they were diligently pursuing Christ knowing him and his mission. The apostles knew that the greatest work to be done was to obey Christ, who told them specifically, teach them all to obey the things I taught you. Which included mission, laying your life down. The Son of Man doesn't even have a place to rest his head, yet he's on mission, yet the Father takes care of him. Some of the things Jesus taught that they were, the disciples were supposed to teach others to obey was... Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Trust God to provide for you like he does for the sparrows and the flowers in the field. These were things to be taught and obeyed and lived out. And they did this. This is what diligent pursuit looks like. 
We are stuck in casual pursuit at best. We diligently pursue our work, our provision, our businesses, our care, ourselves. We have things in our life that we can look at and see that is what diligent pursuit looks like. And when we hold that up to our pursuit of Christ and his mission, do an honest assessment for yourself. It's just this, guys. If we were, our church expression would be so different. It would look different. It just would. And so we can't come up here and talk about much anything else. Nothing else matters until this truth is here, until this alignment happens, until this place of maturity is is arrived at, until Christ has done this work in this midst. And then we can move on to greater things. Then we can talk about aligning the body for strategic strikes and expansion and mission and conquering. But until then, this is the work to be done. Aligning the body in this place of maturity with Christ at the center and our lives revolving around it. So that at a drop of a hat, whatever is happening, whatever is needed, we respond. We answer the call. We're available. And we trust Christ in that. And because we trust Christ, we can trust the people he's placed us with. I was talking to someone in our body, a young man. He's an awesome man. God's hands all over this guy. Fingerprints of heaven all over him. Like he's just, his hand is on him. Good things are going to come from this guy's life. And we were talking. He's been absent from the community for a little bit. And I was just saying, this is a, a, a guy I know prays a lot. He prays a lot. This is a, he's a firebrand. And I saw him, I hadn't seen him in a few weeks, and I was like excited to see him. So I just stopped him. I was busy trying to get to a place, and I was like, I got to talk to this guy. And we were talking, I just said, hey, man, where you been? I miss you, you haven't been around. And you know, life happens, right? Life gets in the way. Sometimes you can't get to where you need to get to. Uh, Work starts demanding a lot from you, all this stuff. It's true. But here's the truth. And this is what I was sharing with him. And, you know, it was, it's just relevant because it's the next step for this young man is to really connect in this place of vulnerable community and life and being able to experience the things of God that you can only experience in this context. And it's this idea that we we pursue Christ as this the singular God-man that we know. And that is our first and highest goal. But He is so much more than what we understand. And that's where we're expanding and growing in this. That he is the fullness of the Godhead. He is husband, but he is father. And he is friend. And he is Lord. And he is master. And he is judge. And he is the one who disciplines. And he is the one who gives. And he is the one who takes away. And in the midst of all of that, we still turn and we say, you are blessed. And in this conversation, it was, hey, listen, Paul said it like this, that you are to be rooted and grounded in love. 
with Jesus, that you are choosing to love him. And I can't ever say the word love without having to explain because it's just the most horrible thing that we say, rooted in love, and then we all start thinking the wrong things. But this is agape. It has nothing to do with how you feel. Paul is saying being rooted and grounded in your complete and utter act of the will to be loyal and committed to Christ. That's what he's saying. To be rooted and grounded in this act of the will to be faithful to Christ above all else. That when you're rooted and grounded in that, that then, together with all the brothers and sisters in Christ, with all the saints, together, you will come together and you will see and experience and know Christ in a whole different way than you have done in your prayer closet. And in this place, you will begin to know what is the actual height of his love. The actual depth, how deep it actually goes, how wide it actually is, what it actually means to experience Christ and his love for you. Because in this body, you, if you diligently pursue it, you will gain fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and grandfathers, and grandmothers, and younger brothers, and younger sisters, and from all these different directions of relationship that you are diligently pursuing, you will begin to see Christ. You will begin to experience Christ, the love of Christ, the height of his love, the depth of his love, the length and width of his love. You will come to this place of seeing how vast and great and good he is. You will begin to say from the depth of your heart, blessed be the Lord our God forever and ever. It will be the natural outspringing of it. Worship will be something that you are doing on a daily basis, but it won't happen through osmosis. And it won't happen just because you come and sit in a chair on Sundays. And it won't happen because you take a class. It will never happen for you apart from a diligent pursuit. The casual pursuit will get you casual rewards. But a diligent pursuit will get you the rewards promised from your father. And these rewards are vast. These rewards are the rewards of knowing him. Abraham was told this, don't worry, Abraham, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And he was promised that right after making a really hard decision to honor his his first commitment to the Lord. It was a diligent pursuit from him. Jesus tells us, he promises us this, right? In, his, in the New Testament, that in him are hidden all the riches of wisdom and understanding and knowledge, and those things are greater than treasures and rubies and wealth and riches. And then the greatest reward, right? This eternal life that everyone has been pursuing from the dawn of time till now. He says this, that eternal life... That's a gift that comes from knowing me. Jesus says it in John, towards the end, 16 or 17, 17. says, 
eternal life is this, to know the Father and the one who he sent. That's eternal life. That's the gift, to know him. Can you imagine if you asked the Spanish conquistadors that were sent on missions to find the the tree of life or the fountain of life? It's true, that happened, guys. And they found found the Bible? Would have saved them a trip across the ocean. They could have went back to the queen and said, we found it. We found the source of eternal life. It's to know Christ. Let's diligently pursue that. We don't have to go on that trip. We can do it right here. But I think we get thrown off this diligent pursuit. And this is one of the things I was, I was saying. It's like, why do we not pursue him? Why do we not pursue him so diligently? How is it that we could preach for a bazillion weeks in a row? Have 24-7 prayer going on. An encounter with God that, that rocked our community. And we still have people choosing to diligently pursue other things. There's people in our midst who are struggling with a bazillion things, and all those things are normal and fine, and and pursuing a diligent pursuit with Christ does not make our problems go away. They just make them redemptive. They make them purposeful. They draw us to Christ. Christ is trying to bring us to a place where we can know him. And these sufferings and these hardships, that's what they are. There's so many examples in Scripture. I wrote down a few. But there's this Scripture in Psalm 121. It says this. Before we talk about it, where does my help come from? David asked this question in a song. He said, He's, he's singing a song, and in it he says this, I will lift my eyes up to the mountains. Right? And remember, in David's life, the mountains are super significant for the presence of God. He's born and raised in the stories of Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, and those two things, and it's throughout all his psalms. He says, where does my help come from? He says that right after he says, I will lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of the heavens and the earth. And this is a man who goes into battles for a living. This is a man who is a warrior, who is such a warrior, and has been in so many battles, and survived so many battles, which is what's significant here. So much so that he wasn't even allowed to build a temple because there was too much Too many battles, too much bloodshed on his hands. And he says, I will lift my eyes up towards the mountains. Where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heavens and earth. And he does not sleep or slumber. That just, that resonates confidence. But it's confidence that has been born of experience in seeing this happen over and over. And it's this idea that that we are not saved from these things. We're not saved from the storms of life. 
but we are saved in the storms. God will literally usher us into these storms in order to show us his faithfulness and save us from them, which then tells us we can confidently trust that he does this. When you think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this story, they put it just plain down. It's right there in Scripture. It's been recorded for us. And they, all they had to do was compromise just a little bit. And instead, they said, they made this statement. They said, we will not bow to you. We worship one God and him alone. And he will save us from your fiery furnace. But even if he doesn't, we still will not bow down to you. That's, that, that's what it means to, to be rooted and grounded in this love for, for God. That their commitment was, this is, this is it. My highest allegiance, my highest loyalty is that I will do what is right before God, and if I die, I die. But my God will save us from this. But even if he doesn't, even if he chooses not to, for whatever his reasons are, we're still not going to do it. And then the rest of the story is a really cool example of how God saved them, not from the fire, but in the fire. He met them in the storm after they first made that step of faith and trust in their God. God then faithfully met them and saved them in it. And he does the same thing with Daniel. And you know why Daniel was thrown in a lion's den? Because he refused to pray with the windows shut. He refused to pray with the windows shut. I guarantee you if he came to some Christian counseling and the, the government was threatening death for those of us who, who uh, are praying to any other god but the king of Babylon during this, this season, that the council would be like, well, just pray in secret. Just pray in private. Make sure the door's locked. Make sure the windows are closed. Pray quieter. Daniel could have done that. Would anyone in this room have been like, Daniel, you compromiser, if he just decided to shut the windows when he prayed? No one would have ever known he was praying. But because this was his testimony, this was his mission in this land of captivity where he had decided, I am representing Yahweh even here in this land of captivity, and I will do so three times a day from this place. This was, this was the equivalent of his witness. And he prayed in his windows, windows open, for all to see and hear three times a day. And his enemy said, we can get Daniel by having the king decree that no one's allowed to do that right now. And then they went and watched, and Daniel knew it. Daniel was high up in the ranks of the king. He knew what this was. He wasn't stupid. He was a political mastermind. And he opened the windows, and he prayed again. And the king takes him, and because he has to, throws him in the lion's den. And the lions were hungry. We know that from the story. They wanted to eat. And God didn't save Daniel from the lion's den. He met him in the lion's den, and he shut the lion's mouths. I don't think Daniel had some promise from God that God was going to save him from the lions. 
I think Daniel thought he was dead. And that was the cost of, of being committed to that diligent pursuit of what God had asked him of. And you can look at story after story of these examples. David went into battle after battle, grossly outnumbered, with a much less army, trusting God because God said, go, and I will meet you in this battle. And David had to go and swing that sword and receive injuries and sweat and stress and be to the point of bloodshed many, many times. He was a warrior. And he trusted that God met him in every one of these battles. And here's the problem with us, guys. I'm just going to say it. Too often we withdraw when we're supposed to push through. And that's where we lose our diligent pursuit. And that's why we're in this casual pursuit. We run into a hardship. We run into a conflict, relational conflict, offense, uh, financial conflict, uh, time schedule. I want to say offense again, because that's like 50% of the time. And we withdraw when we're supposed to push through. God wants to meet us in it and save us in it, but we never give him the chance because we withdraw from it. We come up against it and we withdraw from it. Sean talked about this some the last time he talked about the prayer. It's just another example. God came, did something, and left behind the deposit and said, do this. And there's a big withdrawal. There's a, a lack of pursuit of what God did during that time. I'm not talking about just the 24-7 prayer. I'm talking about what God did in your life. What changed? Does your life look different now in any significant way than it did before that time? Before God's last time coming in and doing something very significant? Has your pursuit been diligent? That's the question. That's what this all comes down to. And what it looked like to me is just that, that we're so many times where we're supposed to push through, we withdraw. And we miss the opportunity to watch God come through and to know him and to see him and to receive his exceedingly great reward. Paul said it like this. He said, have done all, stand. And the rest of that whole passage is describing an assault from the enemy and standing against it in the full confidence that God is bringing that victory. So what does this look like in terms of knowing him? It's the second part of that scripture. Last week I talked about you must believe that he is, right? And what that means, knowing him. And knowing this is the only way you're going to get an accurate understanding of what his face looks like. You must pour over this. If you don't do that to start, you're already gone. Just, you're gone. You don't have a chance to know him. You will worship a God. It just won't be this one. You'll use the same names. You'll come to the same services. You'll sing the same songs. But you are singing to some God of your own making because you don't actually know him. You know a God of your own making. But... We have this promise that this testifies of who he is. And in him is eternal life. This is the means that he has given us, the primary means. And then the second part is that, that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. 
And what that testifies to is Christ in all of his godness, which includes his body, connecting to the community, being part, persevering, joining in on the mission. You will not, you will not experience the family, body of Christ, the community that God intends if you are not serving together. You won't. That's the whole purpose of the body, the mission. You have been brought into the body to take on the Great Commission alongside the rest of us so that we can carry each other's burdens as we are making Christ known. But here's the thing. That is a supernatural thing that we miss. We think it's so practical. It's supernatural because we are, this is how we're coming to know Christ in the height and depth and length and width of it. So the challenge here today is this. What does your diligent pursuit look like? Be honest with yourself. I'll say this every single time I'm up here, guys. Be honest with yourself. Be vulnerable with others. Ask them for input. If you're not willing to ask others for input, then you're not being honest with yourself in the first place. Do you understand? You're not. If you're not willing to do that, what are you doing here? What are you doing in the church? What are you doing trying to be part of the body of Christ if you're not pursuing the benefits and purposes of it? Some really good golf courses around here. Sean loves when I say this, but I'm saying go golf instead. You're wasting your time. Do something, anything else. But choose today what you're going to do. Are you going to diligently pursue the Lord or not? And I'm not saying, oh man, I'm not perfect, like, so I can't do it. No, none of us are perfect. We're all in the same boat. We just need to start rowing together. Okay? We need to get aligned with Christ and his purposes and get onto this diligent pursuit. It won't be easy. No one ever said it is. In here, at least. Lots of people here say it's easy. It's not. A casual pursuit is easy. You'll feel comfortable in a casual pursuit. But when you're in a diligent pursuit, there's no such thing as the comfort you're experiencing now. It is uncomfortable. The comfort you receive is the comfort from, from Christ in the midst of the suffering and the struggle. And you'll have periods of rest. But the periods of rest only exist because you need it. But you don't need rest when you're in some casual pursuit. You've found 15 other ways to find your rest and receive your rest. Anyway, I'm going to stop there, okay? Because the point of this was this, not to, not to point out all the, the ways we're missing it, but to say there's a diligent pursuit that we haven't reached yet. And the challenge here is for you to pursue Christ and ask your brothers and sisters for accountability, for input, for, for insight, and say, do you see this diligent pursuit in my life? Oh, why are you asking me? Because I just, I really want to know God, and I really want to pursue him, and I really want the reward of knowing him, and, and receiving the comfort, and knowing the joy of salvation, and, and what it means to worship Christ. So today's request to the Holy Spirit is to open our eyes to this for a diligent pursuit. Can we do that? Can we do right right now as a body? Just begin to ask God 
to stir this thing in us, this level of accountability, this level of pursuit, where you are literally working to the glory of God. You are actively finding ways for your business and your job and the task of your hands to bring God glory in a significant and specific way. You're looking for ways for the, for the works of your hands to bring attention to Jesus Christ in your efforts, in your family. You want your, your, your spouses and your children to look at you and say, I see God being glorified in this. Let's do that. If you can do it from sitting down, good on you. I can't do that. So let's just begin to pursue him right now. Begin to just do it. I need like the full body participation or else I zone out. And let's have the prayer team come up now. Let's do this. Let's do this together. Prayer team, you can pursue God while you're up here as well. And just be up here ready. In this pursuit, guys, if you feel the tug, if you feel within you the Holy Spirit saying, you need help with this. Do you understand? Do you feel the pursuit, the pull in you that you need help? You've tried and tried and tried. Do not allow the thought to come into your mind that says, no, I can do it this time. I can do it on my own this time. I can do it on my own this time. Banish that thought. Take it captive. And instead, come up and initiate help. Initiate help. Say, I need help. Can you pray for me? Give me this help. And then find help. Find communities, life group, prayer groups, whatever you're doing, and get that help. But right now, begin to pursue it. Pursue this, a diligent pursuit of what God's doing here. Ask God to to turn it from casual to diligent in your heart so that it begins to act out that way. Don't go anywhere. I, I just have this, I have a sense that some people are struggling with this idea because you're talking about a diligent pursuit, which is, in my mind, like a stewardship element. It's us, it's us pursuing something, whereas the contending philosophy is, you don't have to do anything. Christ did it on the cross. It's all done. Are you trying to strive in your own strength? I thought you're supposed to rest in your sonship, and you've been adopted and loved fully by God, unconditional grace. Like, why do I have to do this? It seems contrary to that. It seems like I'm striving. And I think it's important you just address that for a second because I don't want half of the people to be disqualified from, or even 10%, to be disqualified from entering into this because it's what God's calling us as a community. Yeah. Well, there's, those two things are not at odds. They're both true. But the result and the fruit of it is this. And it's what we talked about faith and works for like weeks here, guys. There is no such thing as faith without the works. Faith includes the belief and the work together. Those two things together equal faith. And that's what James teaches us. So we do it from a place of confidence. We're not trying to earn salvation. No, salvation worked out looks like this. That's why God says it in the New Testament. A, he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's why in the book of Revelation, you don't get any more New Testament than that, right? It says those who endure to the end will be saved. You understand it's, it's not an earning. 
of any type of acceptance, God looks at you, and when you are yet a sinner, he came and died for you. But the response, the appropriate response of someone who recognizes of how much they've been forgiven, now says, I will diligently pursue you. And so the fruit of the tree of salvation looks like works. If the fruit on that tree does not look like the good works that God has predestined for you to do, then the question now comes down to the tree. What kind of tree is this? I don't see it. God doesn't see it. The scriptures don't see it. This is why they gave their lives. This is why they strove. This is why Paul said he strove even to the point where he despaired even of life. Can you imagine if that standard was held to Paul? Paul, you've lost your peace. You've lost your hope. Don't you know? Don't you know your salvation is secure? Well, Paul, who taught us that, was saying that they despaired even of life because of how hard the pressing and the, the, the pursuing and the diligence required was on his life. But here's the promise. Like I said, that God's not going to save you from that. He's going to walk with you through that. The suffering is part of it. Paul literally teaches that. All those who come to Christ must prepare to live a life of suffering and persecution. He's not saving you from that. He's driving you into it. But he has promised to be with you in that. And in that, you will come to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings. And then in the power of his resurrection. And you will know him. And we will see him. And so this diligent pursuit looks like this. A person who has recognized how great a salvation they've been given freely and who has seen just how much they've been forgiven of and continually be forgiven of, that life looks like something specific. That response looks like something specific. It looks like someone who realizes that is the highest value and not these other things. And so that diligent pursuit lines up here. And so that's what we're after, guys. We're after asking the Holy Spirit to say, God put in me a diligence that pursues you and your righteousness above everything else. That when I get tempted to fear and to pursue these other things that I need above you, that when I get tempted to bump serving you and your body and being part of your mission to the side because I'm too busy working towards my provision, that you would remind me that I can trust you like the birds of the air trust you, like the flowers of the field trust you that I can trust you in this, that I can say no to that. I have a higher priority here in my life and I must do that trusting God will do the rest. When we get to that place, we're going to see such alignment. You're going to have opportunities to see God provide in ways that let you know in no unsure way that he is your provider, that he he is providing for you to be on mission first and foremost. So let's ask for it. Let's, let's begin to pray. There's only so many things that that we can do with preaching and teaching and, and, and discipleship. There's some things that only the Holy Spirit can do in your life. And this is one of those things. 
the gift of teaching, the gift of, of, of insight, discernment, all these gifts are given to help clear the way, remove some obstacles, so that the Holy Spirit has a clear landing zone right to your heart. And it's up to you to say, the path is clear. Come on in. So make yourself vulnerable before him right now. To say, Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. Do the things that only you can do. Clear away these things that seem to have such a strong grip on my heart. On my mind. That I feel like I'm in bondage to these other things. I make priority over you. Over the pursuit of you. Over this life of living with you and for you. That these other things in my life, that they would line up appropriately with you at the head and you at the center. So that when I stand before you, I can boldly say that you were my exceedingly great reward that I lived and breathed and moved for. Pursue that right now. You and God, I'm done. If you need help, come up, get prayer, and don't don't let that thought that says you can do it on your own rule the day, guys. Murder that thought and get help. And let's just begin to do it. And let's begin to watch the fruit of this community just unite under Christ in such a significant way that it's inescapable that people will come and say, what do I have to do to be part of this?